Good morning. If you would please open your Bibles with me to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. Would you guys give it up for our tech team, please? As I've said in the past, we often don't know that they're there until something messes up. Um, But they work very hard and diligent every single week uh, to ensure that we have sound for our instruments and vocalists, uh, that things get recorded and put online. Uh, just so you guys know, some, somewhere in the ballpark of 25 different people were watching online uh, last week alone, uh, one of which is in Texas, another family that's in uh, Florida, people that are watching and giving that don't even uh, have the capability of being here in person. So they do a lot uh, behind the scenes, and we're just grateful uh, for them. Now, uh, amen, right? We're grateful for our tech team. Um, so I, I want to just start out by saying uh, for, uh, for about 10 years, my family and I lived in Florida before God brought us back here to Ionia. And uh, I loved uh, living in Florida at certain times, uh, but I could not wait uh, to get away from Florida when God called us to come uh, back here. In fact, the day I moved, um, the, my wife and our kids came up early, a few days prior to me. Uh, my dad flew down, and we drove our U-Haul back, uh, our 26-foot U-Haul full of our things back. And the day that we left, December 13th of 2020, it was 97 degrees with 100% humidity in December. I was so grateful that God was allowing us to leave uh, a place where you could not breathe when you stepped out your front door. Um, Now, living in Florida had its benefits for sure. It did. As in, you know, we were two minutes from a beach. Uh, Not a very nice beach, but we were still two minutes from a beach. Uh, It was a beach nonetheless. But one thing that Florida could never, ever, ever offer to us was a genuine picture of fall. Never. It could never offer a genuine picture of fall. When the coolness starts to set in, like fall is one of my favorite times of the year. I love sweater weather. I I love uh, sitting around a campfire um, with coffee. That's one of my favorite times of the year. I love when, and please don't sigh at this, but I love when the first frost hits the grass. And some of my favorite times or some of my best memories as a child come in fall. It's the changing of the seasons. Now, if you want to experience the changing of the seasons in Florida, then you have to go to a mall or you have to go to Starbucks. And I know not, not, Starbucks is not everyone's favorite. Uh, you have to make sure that your AC in your house is, is super cold so that you can wear a sweater or a hoodie or a hat. And then you have to go to some coffee shop and, and buy the dreaded pumpkin spice latte uh, that is stupid as all get out. No offense to anyone who drinks pumpkin spice lattes. And then after you get that pumpkin spice latte, you have to go to some home goods store like Hobby Lobby that sets up for fall and Christmas in the month of June. And you can start walking through and looking at all of the decorations and, and you begin to loathe glitter and how glitter gets everywhere and doesn't come out of anything. 
Now, one of the pieces of evidence that is my most favorite during fall is the color change in the trees. It's my favorite thing to see. And now, I want us to understand this morning, I know that you did not come here to church uh, to hear about trees and leaves and color changing and pumpkin spice lattes. But we must understand something before we dive into the text. And it's this, that like a tree that is visu- visibly and continually changing due to something that is taking place inside of that tree, our lives should be continually showing signs, visible signs that the life-changing power of the gospel is inside of us, that it is running through us, that it is changing us. And if you're a note taker this morning, I want you to write this down. The life-changing power of the gospel becomes evident and obvious when what we claim to believe is clearly displayed in our daily lives. It's clearly displayed. It's lived out in how we act in every interaction, in every endeavor that we face, it is lived out. And what we will come to understand through this chapter this morning and other chapters as we uh, venture to finish the book of Acts is that the power of the gospel is at work, that it is on display, and it is completely challenging and changing the culture around us. As the gospel impacts this church at Ephesus today, What we will ultimately see is how a whole entire city begins to riot because their idols are threatened. They're messed with. I mean, idol worship is is far more prevalent and active even in our own lives, in our own culture, far more than you and I may ever realize or even want to admit. When we look to give When we look to anything at all in this life to give us what only God can give us, you've made that thing an idol. You've made it an idol. Anything that absorbs your imagination, anything in your life that is so central that you can't have a meaningful life without it, that's an idol. And idolatry happens when we take good things and we make them God things. Did you hear me? Idolatry happens when we take good things, our family, our spouse, our marriage, our job, the money that we make, sex. When we take these good things and we make them God things, little g, God things. Tim Keller, uh, pastor, uh, author, um, said this. It's going to come to the screen. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I feel my life will have meaning. Then I'll know I have value and I'll feel significant and secure because that thing is in my life. Now, before we get to the issue of idol worship and, and the ensuing riot that is going to happen in the text, we have two sections here in Acts chapter 19 that show us the continual life-changing impact and the power of the gospel. And so if you would, uh, read with me or read along with me in Acts chapter 19, starting in verse number 1. And Luke writes, And it happened... 
that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, please do not miss this, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. This is important. Please do not miss these two verses. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul then said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. In verse number five, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began to speak in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. Now I want us to just stop right there because uh, we, I want us to start uh, the very first note that we must make in the text, something simple that I call an important question, an important question. Paul arrives at Ephesus and he meets these 12 men. And these 12 men, they claimed to be disciples of Jesus. They claimed that they were followers. And so he asks them a game-changing question, a deal-breaking question. His, his question, do you have the Holy Spirit? That was the question. Do you have the Holy Spirit? And the reason that this question is so important is because the witness of the Holy Spirit is indispensable evidence that a person is truly born again. And all God's people said, these guys labeled themselves as disciples. Disciple meaning follower of Jesus. Simply translated word, the word, the Greek word learners is what they called themselves. Learners of the Bible. And if we go to uh, one of the Gospels, specifically John chapter 6, we know that these so-called disciples, people who say that they followed Jesus, in the end actually turned away from Jesus by the masses. And we also know from the book of Matthew that the reason why they turned away from Jesus, as, as Matthew 7 tells us, is that when they were confronted by Jesus, these religious or spiritual people said, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We, we, we ministered in your name. We preached in your name. We laid hands on people in your name. And do you guys remember what Jesus' reply to them? He says, depart from me, for I did not know you men of lawlessness. I did not know. There was no real relationship with Jesus. So if you're a Christian in here this morning, I want you to just look up here. If you're a non-Christian, if you're in church, if you're in this building or you're watching online, I want you to stop what you're doing. I need you to look up here because there's something you have to understand this morning. Something so crucial and so important. You're not a Christian just because you say that you are. You're not a Christian just because you attend a church service. You're not a Christian because your parents were in the church or because you were raised in the church or because your parents were ministry leaders or pastors. You're not even a Christian just because you have prayed or because you've read the Bible. But the very proof 
of your salvation is not based upon something that you've studied or something that you've learned or something that you know. I mean, the very surest sign that you are a Christian is the evidence of the internal work of the Holy Spirit that has produced change inside your life. Change. And the reply that we see here from these men is vague. The answer that they gave back to Paul was vague. We don't even know the Holy Spirit. He didn't He didn't know. The the men who replied didn't know the name, the Holy Spirit. And it alerted Paul. It alerted Paul in that situation. He said, there's something missing here. There's something that's wrong. They don't know Jesus. And so I have to explain it to them. I have to tell them about this real Jesus. And that, that something inside of them that was missing was actually someone, and that someone was the Holy Spirit. I love what Paul said when he wrote to the church at Rome, and it's going to come to the screen, and he said, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God, what, church? It dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to God. He does not belong to him without the Spirit. Just a few verses after this verse right here, Paul writes in that same chapter, in verse number 16, that the Spirit or the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so the very reason that Paul tapped on baptism and into what were you baptized I'm going to mention two things to you this morning about this very section of of church life. There are two false doctrines that are often taught in in Christian circles, more in in the circles of Pentecostalism. But one of them is something called baptismal regeneration. I know it's a big word or a big couple of words together, but what, this, what baptismal regeneration means is that if you are not baptized, you cannot go to heaven. Meaning, if you've never been, if you got saved right now and then the Lord returned and you died, you would not go to heaven because you were not baptized. That's what baptismal regeneration is. And we know from scripture that baptismal regeneration is wrong. And I'm going to explain the other in just a moment. Paul tapped on baptism specifically because in Acts, a person's baptism was an indication of a spiritual change that occurred in their life. At John's baptism, the, the John the Baptist, his baptism was of repentance. It looked forward to the coming of Christ. He said, there is a man who is coming after me who is the Messiah. In fact, John was the one who said, there is the Lamb of God when Jesus stepped onto the scene. Now, the Christian baptism, the baptisms that occur post-death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ looks to the finished work of the cross and the empty tomb of the resurrection. That's what our baptism is symbolic of. Now, I want to just stop here for a moment. Because the other thing... 
I want us to talk about here. The other false doctrine that is taught is that believers somehow don't receive the Holy Spirit unless someone hits them over the top of the head or, or with a jacket uh, or something along those lines that you see Benny Hinn doing on TV or Kenneth Copeland. Um, that's not true. Not at all true. Paul never one time instructed anybody here in the text as to how you receive the Holy Spirit. He explained to them how you receive Christ. I want you to remember, do you remember what church he said he was at? What was the location that he was in? Ephesus. He's in Ephesus. This is the same church that he wrote the book of Ephesians to. And in just a minute, I'm going to bring another verse to the screen. And I'm going to show you something. But Paul never instructed these men on how to receive the Holy Spirit. And while Acts is transitional, it's important to know and to remember that the moment that you are saved, the Bible teaches that we have been baptized or received into the body of Christ. It is that very moment that we receive the Holy Spirit. The whole getting wet part or the being dunked underwater, that's an outward expression of an inward change that has already taken place. It's symbolic of what happened spiritually in your life. Baptism does not make you a Christian. It proclaims that you are a Christian. And this occurrence of, of Paul laying his hands on these men and receiving the Spirit was a display of Paul's apostolic authority here in the text. He was affirming these men into the body of Christ to enable them to in turn preach and proclaim the gospel. Paul later writes to this very church Ephesians 1.13 says this, In him you also, when you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were what? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You were sealed. That word sealed here on the screens comes from the Greek word phragizo, which means to give full security or to give ownership to someone or something. And a seal in the Bible times was an indication that a letter or a scroll was closed or it was completed. The work was already done. When a king or a dignitary wanted to show an identifying mark with the letter that he completed or sealed, he would seal it with a resin imprint of his signet ring, his symbol that showed that he gave approval to what was spoken and closed in that letter. And church, the Holy Spirit likewise shows that believers belong to the Lord. Amen? And so church, Christian, family member, friend, can you answer this important question? Do you know that you are saved? Do you know? Do you have evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life? Is your answer vague? Is it? 
as I have said before, if your faith has not changed you, then it has not saved you. If your faith has not changed you, it has not saved you. Now, I want you to pick up with me in verse number 8, and I want us to see what happens now here in the text. In verse number 8, And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them. And he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the halls of Tyrannus. And this continued for about two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jew and Greek. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to evoke the name of the Lord Jesus who those, uh, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus who Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit then answered these seven men. And he says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? Who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Amen, right church? Amen. And so this portion of scripture leads us to our second point this morning. And our second point after the important question is inadequate power. We see inadequate power happen here in the text. Now, let me just say this about uh, the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus, uh, as we saw last week with Corinth, Ephesus was the richest city in the richest region in all of the Roman Empire. They brokered some of the best deals with the Romans, and they basked in a ton of prosperity and even more so in a lot of perversion. Ephesus was the watering hole for every single kind of wickedness. It had witches, they had magic, they had clairvoyance, they had criminals, con artists, murderers, rapists, perverts, and every kind of idol imaginable was found in this location. Ephesus was the very treasure house of Asia. It was the mother of materialism and even ambition. Ephesus was also the site of the temple of Artemis, which in that time was one of the seven wonders of the world. Paul spent such a great deal of time teaching and preaching here for three straight months. Theologians believe that he preached for over 120 hours in that three-month period, lecturing 
Uh, to the point that the Bible records for us that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And he did all of this with no technology at all. None. An entire location heard the word of the Lord with no technology. Now, we see in the text that some of these hearers, they grew hardened to the gospel. They grew hardened. And for you note takers, I want you to please write this down, that when the truth is rejected and refused repeatedly over time, the result is always hardness of heart. It's always. Uh, the same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. Think about that. The, the repeated exposure to the gospel will have a reaction and your eternal destiny will either be based upon your repentance and your willingness to respond to the message or your rejection of it. I mean, God gave Paul the ability in this moment to do great works and great miracles. And those great works and great miracles did not deter the attacks. They didn't. The anger came and, and it gave birth to an idea that backfired badly for these seven sons of Siva. And by the way, church, I'm also just going to throw this out there. Nowhere do we see in the text that Paul sold those handkerchiefs to make money. I'm just throwing it out there. Sow this seed of $1,000 and I'll give you this miracle water that's going to make you live for the next 55 years. Nowhere in the text do we see this. God confirmed the very message through the signs and wonders to help a people believe in the power of the gospel. Do you know God did this exact thing in the Old Testament? Remember all the way back to the book of Exodus. Do you remember what Moses' staff turned into in front of Pharaoh? A snake. He turned it into a snake. And those miracles that we see in the Bible especially here in Ephesus, where idolatry was rampant. Those miracles were there to help a very suspicious, superstitious, and wicked city see and understand that there was something far more powerful than what they believed in. The, the very purpose, as I've been telling us from the beginning of this series, I, this is week number 18, I believe. The very purpose of the miracles that we see in the Bible was always to point people to the power of the gospel. Always. And so here we have this local group of ghostbusters, right? These seven men who decide to attempt to imitate Paul and they attempt to go and cast a demon out of somebody. I want you to know in the Bible, exorcism was such a big business People would pay hundreds, uh, hundreds of silver and gold to have an exorcism done in Jesus' day and age. And so the problem for this, this group of men is that they had no power, none whatsoever. They ended up getting what I would call a royal beatdown by the demons. And an important application lies here for us, not one that's going to come to the screen. But I'm going to just say this, Christian if you try to help people without the power of the Holy Spirit in you, then you better be extremely careful and also be ready to get humiliated. Because there are 
as the Bible tells us, spiritual forces at work. In fact, the Word of God tells us that there is wickedness in high places that is at work. And while you might have some really great advice, and while you might have some of the coolest secular psychological terms and the greatest philosophy known to man, please know that a demon can spot a phony from a million miles away. Oh, we were just talking, my wife and I were just talking the other day. Uh, it was, I believe it was A.W. Tozer that said that the devil is a better theologian than any man and he is the devil still. He knows more about God's word than any of us could ever know and he is the devil still. And so chi, church, the, the, the demons didn't know these seven men and these seven men did not know Jesus. And the result of this incident in the text sparks probably what I would call a great awakening for the gospel. According to verse 17, people began coming to Christ because of this event. They started destroying their attachments to their old life. It said that these men brought their books and they set them on fire in front of them. That, that 50,000 pieces of silver is estimated today as $7 million, American dollars. That means that in this moment of time, the $7 million worth of occult and idol paraphernalia was destroyed and burned right here in the text. And it says in verse 20 that the word of God grew. It grew. It expanded, meaning that it got the attention of the people. And the local businessmen who made their income off of idol worship were also impacted. I want you to pick up in verse 21 with me. And it says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades, and he said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger, not only that this trade of ours may become into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged, and they cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, I want us to stop right there. And the third thing I want us to note in this text is idol worship. We saw the important question. We saw the inadequate power. And now we see the idol worship. Do you know when, when you really press in and look at what is happening here in the text, it's extremely incredible. An entire culture is being impacted by the life-changing power of the gospel. I mean, church, I want you to think about it for a moment. Seven million dollars worth of wickedness was destroyed 
in front of all the people. Seven million dollars. Uh, talk about a big bonfire in the center of Ephesus. And we, we cannot overlook here. And often this passage has been misapplied in the fact that an entire culture was so radically changed that the economy was rocked in Ephesus. The, the gospel should really change the way that you and I live to the point that every facet of our culture is impacted or affected, including the economy. You know the gospel has changed you. And you know that your community has been changed by the gospel and your culture has been changed by the gospel when they start redirecting their money. That's how you know that the gospel has really affected. Why? Follow the money is a phrase that is used in, in police circles and in the business world. Follow the money. You want to know about a person? You want to know about a business? Follow the money. Follow the money. And so I have a question this morning. What do you spend your money on? What or who gets the largest portion of your money? Tim Keller I wanted to quote again from one of his books. By the way, if you are a reader, I would recommend a couple of books to you. One, I would recommend that you read the book Gods at War by Kyle Eidelman. I would recommend that you read it. We typically have a couple of copies out there and I'll go and pick some more up because I believe we just sold the last one this morning. The second one is Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. And the last one is probably not one that you will find at a local Christian bookstore. You'll probably have to order it online. And it is the book Gospel Treason by Brad Bigney. Gospel Treason by Brad Bigney. Tim Keller says in Counterfeit Gods that money isn't always an idol, but it shows you where your idols are. It shows you where your idols are. People get mad in church when the preacher talks about money because in reality, money for the most part gets what you want so you tend to only give God the least amount possible. And we tend to give God the least amount possible just so that we can soothe our conscience. You, you, you get mad, right? You, you start to feel uneasy whenever giving is talked about. That's just like the people in the text. They started to riot because their idols were messed with. We begin to riot in our heart every single time someone stands in a pulpit or you read a book and they touch on the very idols that we find in our lives. There are churches here within our own community where there are silent riots every single Sunday when the offering plate is passed in front of those congregation members. But the very inner working of the Holy Spirit and the gospel will start to root out the very idols and expose what you truly love in this life. This temple where they're at in the text, it's packed. Historians tell us that that temple sat 23,000 people in its building. 23,000 and you have a place that is now raging with confusion. They're shouting. And Paul wants to go and address the crowd. And the disciples will not let him in if you read the rest of this text. They don't let him in. 
And for two hours, these men and these women, they're shouting about how great Artemis is. How great our God, Artemis of Ephesus, is. And when you think about it, most Christians can hardly sing for 15 minutes to proclaim how great our God truly is. What? You're singing a third song or a fourth song? Wait, how, how long is this sermon? You know what someone once told me when the pastor looks at his watch, you know what it means? Nothing at all. Nothing at all. And so the town clerk comes to this, this mass of people. There's 23,000 people. The, the clerk comes and he calms everybody down. And he says that you're all causing more issues than Paul is. All of you. You're, you're disturbing the very social order that we have here in the text. And if you don't stop, we're going to lose our status with Rome. And we look at this text, and oftentimes we have these thoughts, whether we think them, we say them, or not. We often have these thoughts, well, you know, Ionia is not lined with marble statues that we bow down to, or that we sacrifice to. My, my front lawn of my home doesn't have a statue of Diana or Artemis. And we, we completely lay aside the fact that here in our culture, we do have everyday ordinary idols. We lay, we lay it aside. Like, like the idol of pleasure. That we're, we're addicted to pleasure. Sex, food, fun. Uh, just, just get away from all responsibilities. Get away from all reality of life. There's a tagline in a popular song that says, are we having fun yet? Are we having fun yet? What about people? The idol of people. Uh, the idols of our family or our marriage or our kids or our boss or our friends. And if I don't have these things in my life, then I'm never ever going to be happy. Do you know the things, uh, the thing with idols is that the idol always has to be protected in your life. And in verse 27, we saw in the text that the idols are attached to the deepest emotions of our hearts. Oh, we become overprotective. We become overbearing, not just with our kids, but it affects every single relationship that we have. Or we take the stance, I need to be respected. Or I always have to be right. I always have to be appreciated. And so you end up working hard to make people like you. You, you attempt to prove to them. And then if they do something that upsets you, we go into full-on meltdown mode. Full-on meltdown mode. I mean, if your idol is your reputation, then you work so hard to protect it and you can't stand someone that criticizes it because you always have to have the credit. What about the idol of possessions? All of our stuff, right? This idol makes you keep sacrificing so that you keep attaining more, more than the next person. You go into debt 
to have this thing that it is. You keep sacrificing, but it's never enough. You find no contentment ever in that thing that it is. You always have to have the newest upgrade. You always have to have the newest addition. Do you know what's really strange about that mentality is that we become consumers that are being consumed by our own consumptions. That very thing. Well, what about the idol of privacy? Right? I just want to be left alone. I don't want anyone to talk to me. The only company that I want is myself and nobody else. I'm in love with myself. Everybody else is an absolute nuisance and annoying. Nobody understands me. Or, or the popular phrase, nobody gets me. So we push people away. We begin to uh, display uh, characteristics of being cold and indifferent and closed off. What about prosperity? I'm not necessarily talking just about money. Uh, money is a benefit, right? But what about prosperity in, in the fact of being successful in life? Being well-known, being liked, admired, respected. Do you know what the sad reality is this morning? Is that many of the gods in Ephesus demanded child sacrifice. Many of the very idols today in our culture demand the exact same thing. The exact same thing. Parents sacrificing their kids today looks a little bit different. We either sacrifice the very reality of having them in church just so that our kids can do whatever it is that they want. Playing a sport, going to hang out with a friend, constantly missing church. Well, we, we sacrifice our kids by working and working and working just so that we can have more money because uh, we want to live under the guise that I just want to give my kid a better life than I had. And your quest for success ends up demanding that you work longer and harder and it keeps you from actually investing into your children. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, guardian in this room, your first ministry is your family. Your very first ministry. Discipleship does not start here at the church for your kids. It starts in your home. It starts in your home. And if you're an adult who has adult children, that discipleship didn't stop because they don't live in your home any longer. That discipleship continues on until the day that you are no longer here because God gifted you a blessing. And that blessing is to be stewarded until the day that you are dead. It is to be stewarded. Don't squander and waste the time, mom, dad, that has kids at home. Don't waste it now. And if you did waste it, ask God to forgive you and you can you continue now to invest in your kids because if not, if not, you've sold them to the devil himself if we don't invest in our children right now. Statistics tell us that a child knows by the age of eight has an understanding 
of what they believe about God. And if they have not made a decision by 13, that 72% will either die before they become Christians or they won't become Christians until they are late in life when they've already made all the mistakes that could have been avoided if mom and dad would have taken the time. And so everything here this morning points to the very fact that there is truly only one definition of what it means to find success. And I've worded it in this way, that true success is defined as faithful obedience. Nothing else in this life, in the grand scheme, in the big picture, nothing else in this life matters as much as faithful obedience to the Lord. Nothing. You could live in a hut with dirt floors, but if your kids are on their way to heaven because they know Christ is Lord, then that should give you all the joy you need in this life. Amen? Only Jesus, church, has the power to crush the very idols that are inside of us. Only Jesus can set us free. Only Jesus can fill our lives with joy and contentment. Has it ever astounded you that our Savior despite our sin and wickedness, he warmly welcomes us. Does that astound you? Uh, God patiently anticipates our presence at the invitation that he graciously extends every day that we are here on this earth. And with that being said, I, I want to direct our attention back to the word of God in a moment as I was preparing this sermon, um, it was yesterday, I was looking back through my notes and felt as though the Lord was calling for each one of us based upon this very chapter uh, to come together in communion this morning as a church body. And at the very table of God's grace, we discover that our sins are forgiven we discover that our debt is paid, that our past is covered, that our future is secure. And to me, that is a welcome like no other into the arms of a loving Savior. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to take these last few minutes that we have, and I want us to jump over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I want to read to us, Starting in verse number 23, 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse number 23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. 
And so let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And that's where I want us to stop. The word examine here in the text means to prove or to qualify one's self. Someone who examines himself or herself is qualifying themselves to eat of the table. That happens first and foremost by ensuring that you are actually saved. The very first thing that we talked about, the important question in the text you, you must ensure that you are a part of God's family. And if you are here right now and you are not or you don't know if you are, there is an opportunity at this very moment in time for you to cry out to God and ask him to forgive you and to save you. We have to ensure that we have repented and we've asked for God's forgiveness, that we are in a right relationship with God and that we have received Christ as Lord and Savior. Communion was an act that only those who were a part of God's family were to partake. This is a family supper. So the people in personal relationship with God can come forward in just a moment. We not only examine our salvation that we have received from Jesus Christ, but we examine our sanctification. His very rule and reign in our lives. This means that you and I have to come to this table washed or, or clean or maybe what I would call ready. This is not some religious ritual that we do. We know that we are not perfect, but we can and should come prepared, making sure that there is nothing in us that is not right before God and before our brothers and sisters in Christ, meaning that you and I should have a clean conscience before we partake. And so in just a moment, when the music begins to play, I'm going to ask each of you to come forward down the center aisle, grab a communion cup here on the side, and make your way to the outsides back to your seats. When you receive that cup and you make that, uh, that way back to your seat, I'm going to ask you to sit silently and allow the Holy Spirit to work in you to seek the Lord, uh, as the text says, to examine uh, yourself. And in just a few minutes, I will uh, pick us back up, walk through this, and then we will eat and partake together as a family. And so Tech Booth, if you want to go ahead and play that song softly, and as the music starts to play, you guys can just begin to get out of your seats uh, and come forward.
there are two focal points as we partake of the Lord's Supper. These focal points are just symbols. They have no saving power in and of themselves. The first is the bread, the symbol of the body of Christ. The text tells us that Christ's body was broken for us. And just as bread gives life to the physical body, Christ gave his body for us so that we might have life spiritually. The Bible describes Christ as the bread of life in John chapter 6, where it says that I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give in my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Thus, when we gather and we take the bread of the Lord's table, we break it, we pass it amongst ourselves, or, or we have them here in these cups. We are reminded that Jesus is our life. He is the one by whom we live. And this is what the bread symbolizes, that Jesus is to be our power by which we obey the commands of God, the word of God. His life in us enables us to walk the path that God has called us to walk. The second is the cup, which is a symbolization of, of the blood, and that blood, which is said to be the blood of the new covenant, the, the new arrangement for living that God has made by which the old life has ended. You know, blood is the end of the old life in which we were once dependent upon ourselves and lived for ourselves. We wanted only to be the center of attention, and that is now over, and that's what the cup means. We agree that we are no longer living for ourselves. And so when we take that cup and we drink it, we are publicly proclaiming that we agree with the sentence of death upon our old life. We believe that the Christian life is a continual experience of life coming out of death. It is the bread that gives us new life. It is the blood by which that new life flows through us. So as we come to the table, we remember that Christ gave his life so that we might have a new life and we might live in this new life. Now we know from the text that Jesus, when he broke the bread and, and passed the cup, that he said a prayer of thanksgiving before um, he ate. And so I'm going to ask at this time, if you have not done so, um, let's get over the annoying part of ripping open the plastic um, on our cups. It says in... 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for me. Do this in remembrance of me. And so if you would bow your heads in, um, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you at this time, Lord, and we thank you for your body that was broken and bruised for us. The life in which you lived, the death in which you died, so that we could have new life so that we could come to know you as friend, as father, as savior, not just as a part of your creation, Lord, but in an intimate relationship with you that is sealed, knowing that we will spend eternity with you if we follow you. So, Heavenly Father, I just 
ask that you would impress upon us that every time we open up the word of God, we reflect, even if it is for a moment, God, of the salvation that you brought because of the body and the blood that was spilled. And I ask and pray these things now with the utmost grateful and thankful heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let us eat together. It says in verse 25 that in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blood that was spilt on our behalf. The, the blood that would cover every sin, past, present, and future. God, we thank you that you loved us enough that you sent your son to endure agony on our behalf. Let us never grow cold or indifferent or even apathetic towards this new covenant, towards the blood of Christ that gives us this new life to live by. We thank you, Lord, for your shed blood and what it means for us today and for the future. And I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Let us drink together.